Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we are discussing this month's book club book, the start of the original run of The Amazing Spider-Man. Excelsior. Now, I don't think Spider-Man needs much of an introduction. He's one of those heroes that I would assume most people know the general gist of. Yeah, uh, despite the fact that they keep on making the same movie about him. Well, maybe I mean, because they, of the fact. They made two. The third one wasn't the same origin. Yeah, I'll grant you that. I, yeah, we, uh, didn't, we didn't see him cry over Uncle Ben. I was just being mean. There's all these rumors about uh, they're going to put all three of the Spider-Mans together in the next one. I mean, I'd be down for that. I would rather <laughs> I would rather eyes. hear their voices in Spider-Verse, but... Yeah, anyone could be in Spider-Verse at this point. They exactly. already made a perfect movie. Exactly. But, you know, despite the fact that um, most people are familiar with the basics of Spider-Man, we actually have never talked about a lot of the topics we're going to go into in this episode. This is true. We really haven't. Uh, and we also haven't really read... Well, we definitely haven't read anything from this far back. Uh, I think this is these are the oldest consecutive comics that I've read. Ever? Yeah, consecutive. Like I think I've read random issues of uh, DC comics that are older or a couple other contemporaneous Marvel comics, but these are the most in a row that I've read of any original run. I've read a bunch of Marvel from this era. The era we're talking about is the beginning of the Marvel era, 1962. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I, I've never read any consecutive Atlas comics, and I've never yeah. read I've read the odd issue of Captain America from the Timely Comics era. But yeah, you might be right. This might be uh, this and the Fantastic Four that was coming out might be might have it beat by like a couple of months. Just pretty weird to think about because a lot of these stories and characters and books are so famous. You'd think that we would have read at least the originals now that they're easily track downable in collected form and you know online digitally <laughs> whereas before before that these were very hard to find yeah oh my god can i be an old person for a second do it yeah because back in my day these would have been i got these um i had these wonderful one shot comics but they were like you know like cheap stapled comics of um like marvel firsts and it had a bunch of x-men first issues in it and that was how i used to read old comics and then i started i think i've mentioned it on the podcast before finding cd roms that had like a whole collection of old comics i had a bunch of those for x-men oh really uh, yeah they, you i eventually i was buying them at like the dollar bins at drugstores but you get a cd rom and it would have like 100 issues of uncanny x-men on it <laughs> um that's amazing and I'm sure they had one for the 60s comics, but I just never um, had them. So I, I didn't read them until they became ubiquitous. And now you can find them on uh, on Marvel Unlimited, and you can find them on Hoopla, and uh, they're easily available in paperback. It's just like, but when I was a kid, I was there weren't even the paperbacks. Yeah, and it is a different reading experience, and we'll kind of get into that in, uh, in a little bit. But the, yeah, because there are, as we mentioned back in, God, what, what which was it? Uh, the Kree Scroll War. A lot of these older comics have been recolored for their, you know, reprinting and re-release uh, for digital. Uh, I'm not 100% sure why they do it this way. I'm guessing they only have the original inks or whatever scans they have, I guess, have deteriorated enough that the colors don't come through. Do you have I'm any no, theories? I'm I have no idea why. Sorry, I was just looking. So I, so I read it. So we're talking about uh, the first 
13 issues, I guess, or 14 issues? Yeah, no, first, well, well, eh. The first 14 stories, we're talking about the Amazing Spider-Man number 1 to 12, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 1, and Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yeah, there were there were about three issues in between 12 and uh, Annual number 1, but doesn't matter. Well, I can see you got deeper into this than I did in a bunch of ways, but um, I read mine in the Amazing Spider-Man Marvel Masterworks, those like black paperbacks that most comic stores sell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm collecting the beginnings of like a bunch of my favorite early Marvel runs that way in the, in the Masterworks collections. Did you oh, read wow. it in the same type of paperback? I read it digitally, but yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you read it digitally. Because I was wondering, I'm looking through now, and I uh, was looking at the credits. I think I, mine is the original colors. Oh, no. Here it is. Color and art reconstruction, Michael Kelleher, and Kellustration. Yeah. I found the credits. You're right. It has been recolored. Which is, you don't notice it necessarily unless you're really sure of the original. But you can tell that it's been recolored because it doesn't have the Bende dots. So for anyone who doesn't know what the Bende dots are, if you know uh, Roy Lichtenstein, he did a whole, I think it's called Bam Pow, an art modern artist illustration. You've probably seen it. He took old, I don't know if it was superhero comics or romance comics, and he zoomed in so that you would really see the dots. And this was how they would color comics way back when because it was cheaper and easier. There would be, I think, three or four different colors. Four, because I think it's CMYK. Yeah, that's where CMYK uh, comes from. Cyan, magenta, yellow, black. K stands for black. Why? It ends in a K. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it ends in a K. And they would layer these dots over each other to give the illusion of color. But as you zoom in, all the color kind of breaks up, and all you see are these overlaid dots. And it it looks really cool, And but that's kind of how you can tell as coloring shifted in the way... Uh, over the years uh, is moving away from that. So these scans are solid colors instead of the broken up Bende dots. Yeah, and now that I'm looking at it, you're making me wonder because like J. Jonah Jameson is wearing a really nifty purple suit, but now I'm wondering what that purple looked like with the Bende dots because that is garish. I'm betting it was just as garish. And also it, it probably looked different because it was bleeding into the newsprint. And so we don't know what it even would have looked like when it first came out. We only know what it would look like 20, 30 years later. Well, that's the thing is on the really news. Well. Yeah. On the, on the newsprint, it gets a little washed out. So maybe the colors wouldn't have been as uh, overwhelming and, and piercing. Yeah. And maybe that was why they made them overwhelming and piercing because by the time it got to the stands, it would have washed out a little absorbed into the paper. It's fascinating how in all art, how production influences technique. Totally. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, and that's, so we got into the form and you read it <laughs> online. So yours probably was also recolored. Yeah. It, it's a scan of the paperback. Okay. Of the same paperback. Yeah. These yeah. Marvel masterworks are great. I, I have, I'm collecting Spider-Man this way. Uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four. And um, the beginning of Claremont X-Men um, with all the classic early uncanny stories like Dark Phoenix Saga and uh, Proteus. Oh, wow. That's um, pretty rad. Yeah, because I, 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 I love this. I, actually, I genuinely love these comics, and I read them. I think they're like fun to read. Um, <laughs> they're old, and I think a lot of people struggle to go back and read old comics. Even people I know who like to keep up with superhero stuff and read fun stuff now struggle when they go back because it's so, it's so different. Yeah, it's completely different which is weird to think about 
like conceptually when you read it you're like oh yeah yeah, yeah that was different but as you think you're like how did this change and like why was this the style and all of that and i think we'll get into that a little bit later but yeah and i i, I struggle with this stuff uh, with a lot of comics but i like these stanley ones i actually think they're really fun yeah i have to agree kind of telegraphing our opinions but uh I'm surprised at how well these Amazing Spider-Man issues read and felt. Um, Even reading them, what, 60 years later? 50? 60. Uh, uh, 62. So that's, uh, yeah, 60 years about. Um, okay, so we're, we're, we're already mentioning Stan Lee. Um, I bet we both, like, Stan Lee, anyone uh, who's listening to this podcast knows Stan Lee and knows a, probably a bunch about him, but I bet no one knows the same stuff because there's just, like, a lot to know, unless you're a Stan Lee biographist or something. <laughs> Which is a thing. There's I know people who have written biographies of Stanley. Yeah. Um, but um, I guess is there anything that you think is pertinent about Stanley going into these books? And um, more importantly, were you struck by anything? Were you just like, are you? Did you think about Stan in a different way from before you read these? Um, did not really. Was... No, nah, it was Stan, exactly what you imagined. Stan, this came out exactly as I imagined because I think Stan's writing style has been parodied to to the end to the ends of the earth and back. And this <laughs> the style that he writes in here, I don't. I think he hones it as he goes along through these books. But in these twelve issues in particular, uh, yeah, I I think specifically the way he writes his captions and addresses the reader. That's that personality shines through in all of his editorials and all of the his speaking roles, and he really adopts this persona so that by the time we get to old man Stanley, he's basically the same person. <laughs> there really isn't much of a difference uh, in terms of how I imagined the character of Stanley. I don't know about the man Stanley because we only get access to whatever he was when he was putting on his huckster persona. Well, I have a question for you about Stanley. Then we all okay. know we, we all know Stanley's affectations. We all know he's just like face front, true believer, gosh whiz. Yeah, and he's got like a big mustache, and he always talks that way. And so we think he. I guess what I'm saying is, you you think of Stanley writing exactly like his cameos because he always talks in the same kind of way in those cameos. Yeah, but that's not exactly his writing style. So what do you, those are what are like the what are the quintessential like what kind of stories is Stanley telling? What kind of storyteller is he? Mm. Yeah, because huh. right, because that way yeah, of talking yeah, yeah. isn't a storytelling style. It's just I like get what you, I get what you mean. Because I was thinking of Stan Lee, because he inserts himself into these narratives. He is the narrator. He is the narrator character of of these stories. At the beginning of uh, Claremont X Men, actually, Stan Lee walks onto the comic, and Cyclops is like, "Get out of here." <laughs> And then Stanley is just like, wow, they've come so far without us. We can let our kids go now. And Claire much just like wrote Stanley passing the book on because it would have been weird because they have to take Stanley out of the book. He's kind of been a character up until this point because he's the narrator. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So that that was more, I guess, what I was talking about. But you're right. Like, how does he write the characters and put? Um, oh, well, everyone's like, so, really mean. Everyone is really mean. Well, I have thoughts about that too because I think that that has to do with the other creator of this book. Ooh, yeah, everyone's really mean. But Stanley likes to give he likes to give us access to characters like their internal lives, not just their logic. Like, I think a lot of thought balloons, maybe not in this era, but whenever I encounter the thought balloon with other writers, it's a lot of process. Like, how am I going to do this? Why am I going to like, what am I going to do and whatnot? But here, a lot of whenever we get an internal thought 
maybe except for the villains. The villains are always like, Haha, I'm going to get Spider-Man by doing this. Ooh. I always found that um, the creators in this era who most often lean on thought balloons are ones who have a theater background. Mm. A lot of them, um, a lot of them wanted to write plays, uh, especially in the '60s. And comics were going to be like a stepping stone on their way to becoming a famous playwright, and they wanted to be the next Arthur Miller. Huh. And I think when you're thinking of plays, you're thinking about like uh, monologues and asides and things that you wouldn't necessarily do in movies or novels. Yeah. Um, and thought balloons are such a visual representation of what that would be from a play to a comic page. Yeah, you're right. Because Claremont also has a I, – I know Claremont's 70s and we're talking 60s, but he's also got a uh, – he's one of the last holdouts of Thought Balloons, actually, by the 90s, and uh, he's got a theater background. And uh, Stan Lee always said he wanted to write plays in the 60s when he was starting out. And a I bunch of it. a bunch of other guys. Yeah, I, I believe it. That's huh, – I hadn't thought about it that way. I uh, there, there was more I found striking about Stan Lee, but I actually uh, – do you want to talk for a second about Steve Ditko? Yeah, and then, then I kind of – I had a couple other thoughts on on Stanley and and the writing, but definitely let let's talk about Steve. So Steve Ditko is the other co-creator on this series, and he's basically the primary artist for most of these issues. Jack Kirby comes in for one issue. I think he was uh, either he inked St- uh, Steve Ditko or Steve Ditko inked him for one of the stories. It was a two twofer issue in the first volume. I have to go back and look um but he people might know him more for well i mean spider-man anyone associated with spider-man is probably known for spider-man first but i know him primarily as a a creator of a lot of the charles charlton characters uh, specifically the question who influenced rorschach in watchmen which is yeah, I would say timely. Um, I mean, these issues are great, and Steve did good. Yeah. But um, arguably, the question is his best comic. It were best is such a loaded word because of that, all the other stuff I want to say about Steve Ditko. But um, the best executed, it's like the truest to his vision. Why do you say that? With the question. Yeah. Why do you say that? Um, because I think it's the one that, uh, if you read this, if you read this Spider-Man, uh, uh till the end of Ditko's involvement, mm-hmm. uh, his politics are really coming through onto the page, which uh, changes once the Ditko leaves the book. And those politics, uh, heavily influence the question. Yeah. Yeah. So his politics, he is a big, uh, believer in objectivism. The, uh, are you Iran an objectivist philosophy. if that's the case? Hmm? Are you an objectivist if you're a believer in objectivism? Yes. And that's really a – sorry, I cut you off. You were saying that it was the uh, – uh, someone who believes in Ayn Rand's philosophy, Ayn yeah, Rand. That, that was the extent of what I know about it. I don't really understand the philosophy other than I think it boils down to people suck. You can only believe in yourself. Yeah, I'm sure if we uh, – we're, we're not really uh, going to well represent the view on this show because I don't no. think either of us are objectivists. I also think – Nor are we philosophers. <laughs> I, uh, uh, man, you put me on the spot. I'd be like, I'm a philosopher. Uh, I studied philosophy undergrad. I don't know if that makes me a philosopher. Maybe I, I would be embarrassed if it, yeah, I'd be embarrassed if it did. I don't want to, I don't want that as a title, but, um, <laughs> I could like do the, the, the short snarky version of objectivism is Ayn Rand was somebody who, uh, read Nietzsche and was just like, what if this was cooler? <laughs> And Steve did co-read Ayn Rand and was just like, what if there was, like, spider wrestlers? So I guess objectivism is just trying to, to make Nietzsche the coolest. But, like, there's a, a bad history of trying to make Nietzsche cool because there's, like, a bunch of Nazis you could say the same thing about. Yeah, yeah. And I, if I remember my timeline correctly, Nietzsche was not 
well by the time Nazism was on the rise. So he personally didn't have much to do with it. I know people who think he wouldn't have liked it, and I also don't think he would have liked Spider-Man. I, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> the, my, my, the extent of my knowledge of, of philosophy and philosophers ends with the names and the names of their books and a vague idea of what their main points were. Well, I, I guess then just really quickly, the, the Ayn Rand thing that I'm seeing everywhere is every couple of issues or once an issue about you have a, a side where Peter Parker gets this like insane murder grin on his face. And he's yes. just like, if only you knew Flash Thompson, if only you knew I could rip your arms and legs off. Um, I have to hide my power for now. But uh, one day, one day, we'll I was even... wondering where those came from. I'm like. Uh, I was like, is this on Stan? Is this on Steve? Why is Peter just like, I hate you, Flash, and I will do everything in my power to make your life miserable if I could. And then he goes back to thinking, and he's like, why did I think that? That's so mean. That's horrible. I can't do that. There's not a lot of, like, uh, the sourcing in this era is pretty tough, right? Because it's not like they were, like, filming everything. Yeah. We know stories that people told years later, and and there's pe- there, there are people who have researched this, and I've read Marvel: The Untold Story, which is a great book. Um, the official story of how most of these Marvel comics were made using the Marvel method is: yeah, uh, the writer, in this case Stan, would come up with a plot, a, v- a vague idea, uh, lay it out, maybe have some more directions, and give it to the artist. The artist would draw the entire thing, send it back to Stan, who would. Or maybe send it to the letterer who would add balloons, and then Stan would fill in the words. But notably, uh, if this is your first uh, time being told about the Marvel method, um, the words are the last thing that's being added in. So the story is not the same as the words that the characters are saying. Yeah. Oftentimes the words are there merely to clarify the action and to establish some of the things that just couldn't be expressed through the art, at least not under the intense pressures of publishing in the comics industry well and i think this is the critical point for some people because um writes the story is so vague does writes the story mean that stanley is writing what happens at each page in each panel or is he just scribbling spider-man fights electro on a napkin and just like uh, crumpling it up and throwing it on ditko's desk as he uh, passes by to go uh what does Stanley do for fun? Uh, well, drive if, fast a, cars? if the end of Spider-Man Annual Number One is to be believed, he wakes up at two a.m. to give Ditko a call and just be like, "This is what happens in the issue." And Ditko goes, "Well, fuck." <laughs> yeah, that's how Stan would have you here. And anyway, just uh, that's also why I think the objectivism could creep in because. Um, uh, Stan isn't writing a page-for-page script of this, so if uh, Ditko uh, writes this scene where Peter Parker gets this maniacal grin and Stan has to write a uh, dialogue from it, he's just like, what's supposed to be happening here, Steve? And then Steve is just like, this is where Peter's like really mad uh, because he can't murder Flash yet. <laughs> that's my that's my theory, anyway. I don't really have any other good theories. I think... Uh, especially because uh, Jack... With Fantastic Four, you could tell that Jack Kirby wrote a lot of that because when you read later Jack Kirby Fourth World comics, you see the writing similarity, and it's not like Stan Lee's writing style. Yeah, yeah. And those asides always struck me as very weird and also very different to our current understanding of Spider-Man. Yeah. But it also (laughs) really clarifies a lot about J. Michael Straczynski's bullet points portrayal of Spider-Man. Yeah. Because reading this, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can totally see how Peter would just be the worst in that timeline without uncle ben well and how his what it looks like when peter parker goes wrong is steve ditko 
<laughs> like everyone afterwards writes Steve Ditko as like the dark side of Peter Parker of like his his own terrible inf- impulses, which is crazy how much of the comics industry from Watchmen to most modern portrayals of Spider-Man are all about burning Steve Ditko. Yeah, kind of. Like, what a legacy this guy has. And I don't yeah. know, I'm not even being sarcastic. It's like that's incredible you're, that your politics were so anathema to everyone you ever worked with that the entire uh, medium and genre is like focused on uh, disproving your points. Yeah, I mean, like with I'm, uh, hi, I'm your resident DC expert on our Marvel podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but Denny O'Neill literally kills off the objectivist version. <laughs> Of, of the question in the in his first issue at DC. Yeah, exactly. I just I think this guy's amazing. I think that the fact that he made so many people so angry for so many decades is kind of an accomplishment. Yeah, and his, but his art is still, but his art it's really clean and I love it. Ditko. I, Ditko. I oh love yeah, the he's way fantastic he... in these issues too. Yeah. He's great. I will we'll, we'll talk about the art in a second. Do you want it? Because I want to talk about uh. Amazing Fantasy Fifteen. I can already say amazing things about his art. Okay, okay. Let's let's go with that. So, but quick, some stuff. You, yeah, yeah. Please. I was gonna say a quick primer on Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. Give me so, a primer. I got this story from the beginning of the paperback. Uh, Stan's basically like Amazing Fantasy number fifteen was gonna be canceled. So I said, "Fuck it, let's put in Spider Man," <laughs> because everyone yep. told him, "No, this thing won't sell." And he's like, "Oh, it's canceled anyway. Who cares?" And then I it actually, got. I think so it's big. really funny that he's just like, uh, it may, now you're just like, obviously, Sp- Spider-Man's obviously a great idea. We've lived with Spider-Man for yeah. so many years. But when he says it, you're just like, I guess most people don't like spiders. I never thought of that. <laughs> spiders are gross. Yeah. I guess he doesn't think spiders are gross. Um, well, he, and he was right. So joke's on us. Yeah. Uh, but people do hate spiders. Yeah. But my I love Spider-Man so much. I never even know. I'm like, yeah, he doesn't look like a spider. He just shoots cool webs. That's cool. He's that's cool. Yeah. And then you've got you've got takes that make him gross spider guy. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski being <laughs> being one of them. He's like, what if we gave Spider-Man six arms? Yeah, which is gross. But okay, yeah. so spiders are gross, but Stanley, but Amazing Fantasy 15 is uh, floundering, and Stanley's just like, uh, I can do anything. I'm going to do my spider idea. My Stanley impression has completely fallen apart. Hello, true believers. Face front. Nah, it's, I'm no good. I wasn't going to begin with. Anyway. Yeah, so in August of 1962, that comes out, and it is such a big hit that they come back with a magazine titled Amazing Spider-Man with two stories in it half a year later, a little over, in March of 1963. And then for the next three years, uh, not three years, for the next three issues, they come out every other month, at least according to the front page. And then issue five is the first, uh, yeah, issue five is the first monthly issue coming one month after issue four. Although at the end of issue five, they're like, we... It's official. We are now a monthly series, and issues six through the end are all monthly, which is really weird to think about. I never thought that there were these huge breaks between issues. I always thought the monthly was very standard. Right. Well, but that makes sense. Also, why they would be so much more self-contained than they are these days when they're reliably monthly. Yeah. 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 But I also think that them being self-contained is such a critical missing component from modern comics, and one of my favorite things about them. Yeah. And it really shows kind of here the strengths of these issues and the strengths of this style of storytelling, because they are telling longer form narratives. It's just 
none of them seem planned out. <laughs> At least not like the slice of life elements. Those yeah, feel that's all like ongoing, a... but na- there's no bigger narrative necessarily. Um, well, there kind of is, um, and they we'll get into it as we get towards the end. But yep. you wanted to talk about Ditko's art in these early issues, and what yes. I love about Ditko is that he's really cartooning like um like this looks like animation from this era this looks like uh you can see Popeye in here and you can see uh the you know Mickey Mouse yeah he really put he pushes poses but he also keeps it it's not overly exaggerated it is it's kind of like the theater it's exaggerated enough so that the people in the cheap seats could still tell what's going on but it's not so over the top that the people in the cheap seats think oh that's not a real person. That's some. That's someone throwing their arms around. Uh, but it's also like uh, in a modern comic. Um, sometimes I get struck by when there's like people in a crowd scene that have no faces in the back. Yeah. And whenever Ditko's drawing somebody in the back who's supposed to have no face, their face is just like stripped down to a happy face. But because uh, his close-up faces are, don't have that much detail either, it kind of nothing ever looks lazy. Everything looks like part of the composition. Yeah, and even when backgrounds are just non-existent for 90% of the panels I never noticed I never noticed that there were just these swaths of yellows and reds in in the background because and I can't tell you exactly why I know a lot of comics don't have necessarily detailed backgrounds but it's really kind of amazing how much Ditko does with so little. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. It and it. Uh, I I guess it's I I I can't know because I'm not looking at the Bende dots. But the um, <laughs> the solid color backgrounds are a little garish. But I actually think they look really good. Like they really pop. There, I'm looking at a panel of Spider-Man and he's shooting a web for the first time, and it's just like a solid green behind him. Yeah. Um, and it's also that the, the way the green at the bottom and the top uh, match up, and they're broken up by yellow and orange in the middle. Like the pan. I I think these are well designed. Yeah, and whoever did the coloring reconstruction did a good job of making sure it wasn't distracting. Yeah. But I think Peter just lives in the sun. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is posing on the sun there. Um, there's something else. Oh, I want to talk about the uh, panel grids. It's so funny that so much of DC right now is um, t- is inspired by D- Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons' Watchmen, and Watchmen gets talked about for the nine-panel grid all the time, but... Gibbons is just doing a Ditko grid. Yeah, yeah, and even there, and even there, when when we see the nine panel grid, it they're not really doing the grid. It's I don't want to make oblique references. So when whenever Tom King does a nine panel grid, he's literally just doing a nine panel grid versus doing what Ditko and and Gibbons did, which is the grid, but it modifies and moves. It changes based on the needs of the page. And in fact, I think he mixes the nine and the six panel grid. Those are the two forms he works with on the whole. And he he sometimes merges them. So like a bottom, like the bottom third will be part of a six panel grid. And then the top two will be top half of a nine panel grid and sometimes modified. But for the most part, that's what he's working in, which is rather interesting to think about. Yeah, and I'm just like I'm flipping through it, and it's just it. Uh, the pacing is so good, it's so measured, and he's got so much more control over it than I. You know, sometimes people pull off uh, fancy stuff, and sometimes people, but a lot of times people ruin this. Like they don't know how to pace a a grid by making the panels bigger and smaller, and yeah. um, based on the like, importance I'm on of, page, of the moment. I'm on page what's marked as page four on my uh, paperback, and mm-hmm. there's um there's 
two rows of three, so there's three short ones, three short ones. Then there's a row of two, which are two long ones. And then the next page starts with two long ones, and then it goes back to three short ones. So it's like mm-hmm. fast, fast, slow, slow, fast, slow. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's got like a – there's like a rhythm and a music to it that like – that in when they're all the same uh, grid size and you repeat panels in those Tom King comics, they so often don't work. Yeah, and the – the the nine panels or the the th- rows of three are also more discrete motions, and then when you get the larger panels, there's a lot more of a time gap between them, and the moments are a little more contemplative. Because yeah. so you you can see because it's it's action action and then thought changing, thought calling someone out and then action and then we get back to oh my god look how amazing this guy is. Spider-Man, it's, uh, the whole wrestling scene. And then the next panel is a producer looking on being like, oh, I could make some money off this guy. Oh, and you know I want to talk to about the, that. When he's testing his webs, it's back to the three in a row. Um, MultiversityComics.com, by the way, is the website where you can be guaranteed that we're going to compare whatever we're reading now to a Tom King comic. God. For better and for worse. Um, there was yeah. other, before we actually start talking about the story in these comics, was there anything else you wanted to say about the context? Um, oh, I do want to draw attention to one thing in the in the writing, and well, two things. One is I wonder how much of the the his writing style is influenced by oral storytelling. So you you said that it, theater, which I think is a little different than like someone standing by a campfire and telling a story. Because this feels like someone is standing there and just reciting the story of the Spider Man to me. That's what all these narrative captions box and the thinking, and I can almost hear someone describing each panel in addition to like what the people are saying. It's got that same rhythm, like a myth or a folk tale. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I really appreciate that about these. But I and I wonder why Stanley chose that, or why that was the writing style of comics at the time because i don't think dc did it in the same way and i don't think other comic companies did it quite the same do you have any thoughts i mean i uh, i don't definitively know i have opinions about it i think i mean i know that a lot of people um talk about superheroes as modern myths and for kirby at least that was definitely on purpose and i also think that kirby is the one who um is most of the style you're talking about. Because have, uh, have you read Kirby's Fourth World? Kirby feels like the Epic of Gilgamesh, something like that. Or yeah. like the Rubaiyat or Journey to the West. This Spider-Man is more like, like horny Greek gods. <laughs> Spider-Man feels like someone's telling me the story of Paul Bunyan. Or sure. Or pa- Paul Bunyan's just a horny Greek god if you think about it. I feel like he would... <sighs> I feel like Paul Bunyan and Hercules would fit right in, and I just came up with a great pitch for a Marvel book. <laughs> We've already got one of them. Yeah. Well, and he was just living with Gilgamesh in the last run. Have him move in with Paul Bunyan. <laughs> Marvel Paul Bunyan would be so fun. Yeah. I just I um someone's gonna hopefully tweet at us and let us know that Marvel's Paul Bunyan uh, was teamed up with USA One in the eighties or something. <laughs> Ulysses Solomon Archer. Ulysses Solomon Archer. Um, That's my go-to obscure Marvel character. So obscure. Wow. Did you have some? I feel like you had something else to say about Amazing Fantasy number fifteen. Well, we. I want to talk about the stories in these issues, but before that, I think we should probably take a break for a commercial. We will see you after the break. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach, and I'm Walter. 
Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back uh, to Make Mine Multiversity. We are talking about Spider-Man. So we should talk. start with um, the first issue with Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yeah, Amazing Fantasy number 15. It's 10 pages long. No, 11 pages long. Very short story, very short intro, uh, and as we talked about in previous episodes, uh, this shortness is r- kind of interesting considering how impactful this particular origin really is, and like how Bendis was so influenced by it. He's like, I need to split this into six issues to really give it the attention it deserves, and I do understand that. I think there are, there are aspects of this where I'm like, if we spent more time with characters and with Spider-Man, it would be more impactful. But as an origin, this is really solid, and it's really engaging and interesting. And Lee and Ditko just worked so well together on this. Yeah, well, and it's like a mission statement for all the Marvel books that come um, afterwards. Yeah. It's 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 um, and it's so funny because Ditko, Lee and Ditko. Every single one of their books together is about like a really arrogant guy who uh, learns the value of humility. Yeah, which, and which and describes both of them. Peter Peter is kind of arrogant, which you don't think about when you think about Peter nowadays. But even though he is the nerd, he's kind of before before he kind of he becomes Spider Man. He's I guess he he's a little he's a little uh, I don't know what the word for it is. He's got. He's very self-important. He thinks he's the smartest yes. and he's better than everybody. And um, he's not. I feel like Tobey Maguire was kind of a sniveling nerd. Was how he played it. He was just like a nice guy who was timid and too nervous to talk to anybody. And Peter Parker in these issues isn't like that at all. Peter Parker will right out walk right up to a girl and ask her out, and then uh, they'll be like, "Ew, I don't want to go out with puny Parker." And then he's just like, "Oh, you'll see." <laughs> That's yeah, kind of that, the cycle. That whole pan that panel at the end of page two i was like um pete you okay this reads very differently now very very scary now yeah where he says someday i'll show them and he's sobbing someday they'll be sorry sorry they laughed at me and he's i not feel like sobbing he just looks angry yeah he looks angry but that's a uh, that's such a, a theme with him that's that's really kind of what he what he goes back to in these issues all the time yeah which i think I like that. I really like how he does start. He doesn't start as Mr. Paragon perfect. Like Captain America is supposed to be the reason why he's chosen is because of his heart. But Spider-Man, it's a freak accident. And he almost does become, you know, the worst version of himself. Whenever people say, oh, superheroes aren't realistic. And then we get like Garth Ennis's The Boys, where all the superheroes are garbage people. Spider-Man could have been that. And that's kind of the point of the story is that he got this power and he's because of who he was. He's like, you know what? I can use this to get rich. Okay, so now I have to share with you my experience of this from when Mm -hmm. I was a kid till now about about this aspect of the story that you're describing. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was like, okay, you get spider powers. um, You want to get rich. That makes sense to me. But so you wrestle. What is that? I didn't understand it at all. 
but I got mm-hmm. into pro wrestling about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. The first wrestling event, if you're a wrestling fan listening to this, that I uh, watched live when it happened was uh, WrestleMania 35. So it's very recently. And now when I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, obviously if I got spider powers, the first thing I would do is become a pro wrestler. So just I think that the uh, how much sense that plan works makes in your head is only related to how into pro wrestling you are right now. I, I disagree. Would you become a pro wrestler if you got spider powers? No, but this is also 1962. And in 1962, wrestling was different because specifically this isn't pro wrestling. It's those can you survive three minutes with the champ type deals. And those strongmen circus aspects, I think, were were more they were more of a thing back then. No, they still do that kind of stuff today. I mean, it's all yeah, fixed But I today. mean, in terms of in terms of ubiquity and people going to them and going to them for that purpose versus going for the purpose of, you know, being a mass or being a persona, fighting another persona and you root for one persona. Although I guess here you are, you're rooting for a big, strong guy to beat up others, you know, try to yeah, protect he's a, their that, champion. That, that... Crusher Hogan is the hometown champ, and he's going to beat up all these follow- these pretenders. And then here comes the Spider-Man, who's creepy and spider-themed. And obviously Crusher's going to uh, beat up a spider. And then he uh, breaks with kayfabe, and he shoot-beats up Crusher Hogan. It's awesome. I, guess. I just never yeah. appreciated this when I was a, a kid because I didn't care. I was just like, that's a weird thing to do with your spider powers. I guess I don't know what I, I would do. I don't know either. But that's not even what he does as the profession he does it the one time because he's like oh i could win a hundred dollars but then he is recruited by someone else to just become a regular showman on tv with his costume or with a different costume he's not even in his spider-man costume when he's when he's brought in which is super weird also he's just like uh doing like flips and i I don't understand this show yeah and it's over the course of days, it says, in the days that follow, he wins the Showbiz Award, he plays to a packed house, he's slated to be to get a new TV show. <laughs> he's, he's apparently this huge celebrity, and then no one remembers him after this. Which I guess, you know, cycle of fame. But in a few days, he did all this? It's page yeah. nine. <laughs> Well, I guess, but that's the advantage to this uh, quick, quick, quick storytelling is uh, look how much uh, change in this guy's life we managed to fit into these few pages. Yeah, I I found that just really funny. (laughs) One thing that struck me in the pages to follow is um, the scene with Uncle Ben getting shot by the burglar. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Raimi really adapted it from these pages. The, there's certain angles that are from the movie. The way the warehouse looks is exactly the same. The beats and the rhythm of how Ditko paces out the panels of Peter uh, seeing the cop running over to him. The cop tells him uh, what happened. That's all exactly like in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. He follows the pacing of, of Ditko's pages. That's so cool. Yeah. Obviously, he changed a few things to make sure it you know fit. I think he did the wrestling thing continuously um, yeah that was and that's where mind. that's where he sees the robber not at the tv station oh that's right they skip over the tv part yeah i mean it makes sense for the movie it, it clarifies things makes it simpler makes it easier to shoot that that's a that was a good adaptation choice i did not care that that was uh macho man randy savage when i was a kid now that's the funniest thing in the world to me <laughs> bone saw is ready is the funniest thing to me now um but I know there was something that really stuck out to you in this issue and the issues to follow. Uh, yeah. A certain tick of Stan Lee's. He, does anyone else know when the word teenager entered the lexicon? Because 
Stan Lee seems to think it's a bullshit word, and so he goes teen hyphen ager. I don't know. If, I don't know if he's trying to be dismissive of the concept. I, I think teenager as a word would have come into common parlance in the fifties, from my understanding. Yeah, which is what confuses me. I like. I don't know if that's just him. If that's how it was written out, because uh, like Halloween used to have a hyphen in it. Yeah, maybe it's really hip. Because how old is Stan Lee when he's writing these issues? He's not old. 20s, 30s. He's got to be like his 20s. Actually, I think he may have been in his late 30s at this point because he had been working elsewhere. Oh, you're right. Like this was a return. Not a return, but this this wasn't like the first venture. He was 40 when this came out. Yeah. There we go. Wow. I always thought Stan Lee was a young guy when he did these. I was mistaken. Well, if you look at the photo, he definitely looks so different. Right, well, we know what he looks like when he's 90. Yeah. Um, Stanley. I always, um, I, I am friends with comic fans who really think Stanley was the worst, and I know that there are terrible stories about things that Stanley did interpersonally, stuff like, uh, it just was like a real showboat and a loudmouth, and he could be really mean to people who worked for him sometimes. But man, if I don't find this early Stanley issues charming as all hell. Yeah. He, and I think he's a complicated legacy of this man. It's It's hard to know as fans outside of the industry really knowing those stories like i we only know of them from stories so it's hard to comment on not the veracity of them but the whole picture of stan that is the realm of the biographer yeah but which i recommend reading yes but from from his from the stories themselves his writing it brings out the charm of characters and this is just a great origin. And also, Uncle Ben never says, "Great with great power comes great responsibility. That's good old Stan. Yeah, Stan says it. Although uh, he doesn't quite phrase it that way, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's, with great power, there must also come, hyphen, hyphen, great responsibility, <laughs> exclamation point. I, I think there are, what, three sentences here that don't end in an exclamation point, and all of those end in question marks. <laughs> I want to tell you something that struck me about Stanley reading these uh, most this time. Mm-hmm. Um, my hot take for you here's here's my spicy little read of uh, these Spider-Man books is um, Stan Lee is a deeply practical man with deeply practical concerns. That's what struck what me mean? in this reading. So I was just noticing I, I was looking at what is the Stan Lee of it like? What sorts of stories is he interested in telling in this? Because he's been because up until this point, Stanley's been writing adventure stories, romance comics, westerns. He's been like writing a bunch of comics, but this is he's writing a new type of superhero comic, and he's really like uh, covering new ground. Mm-hmm. And what Stan Lee's bringing to the t- and and Ditko's bringing in his politics and his objectivism and some great art talent. But Lee is bringing in all these, like, weird practical concerns. So I, I think it's in one of the early issues that uh, Spider-Man gets a check. Yes. For taking pictures of the vulture. And, yes. um, no, no, I'm sorry, he gets a, he gets a check while he's Spider-Man. Yeah, it ha- I think that's, that's from the TV station. Yeah, and he's just like, just make it out to Spider-Man. And then he can't open a bank account. And there's, like, a long sequence where Stan Lee is just, like, comically walking through how difficult it would be if you had a secret identity. Because he's just like, yeah, if you were a superhero, you couldn't have a bank account. Think of how tough that would be. And um, he's always, whenever someone gets uh, superpowers, he's always explaining like, okay, so he's got these web shooters or they could hold this much web fluid. And he's just like really interested in, and, and it's expensive to make. Yeah. Stan Lee just has all these practical concerns and that's like how he wants to tell the story. It's like uh, the adventure stuff, is it feels really like slapdash. And he's like, eh, and then there's some aliens or something. And I, I guess I guess Spider-Man gets out of this by suddenly developing a new power, but he 
it was in this position because he didn't calculate how much web fluid he would need. Right, exactly. It's all, um, it just, uh, whenever, like, you meet a new villain, which you do very frequently in this, there's always a moment where he explains the logistics of how their powers work. And in comic books, they're supposed to be, uh, show, don't tell, but he just, like, can't resist explaining, and he's like, all right, Doc Ock's arms can uh, lift this much, and they're powered by nuclear fission, and that's why, right, he just, like, completely has to go explain everything. Which I, I wonder if that fed that comic book fan stereotype of really caring about the the little intimate details of how superhero and supervillains work and why in this story someone doesn't isn't doing it right because doc ock can only lift 600 pounds whereas he's lifting 700 pounds here and clearly he can't be doing that and that sort of thing well and and it's circular because you can tell that stan lee thinks that the readers are like that and he's writing to that like yeah. the way, and also the way he writes uh, Peter Parker to be such a nerd, you could tell Stan Lee doesn't think that he's a nerd. No. Stan Lee thinks he's a cool guy, and he's writing about this loser Peter Parker who's nothing like him. <laughs> That's at least the vibe I got. And it's hard to tell also because these prints, uh, these reprints don't have the letters columns, so we don't know what people were writing and what they were like, which well, were obviously are... edited and put out and whatnot. But yeah, those are well documented it gives documented a, a, somewhere. a decent idea of the types of people that would get published. In the backs of these, I'm, I'm just I'm just scrolling through some of these pages because they're so much fun to look at. Yeah, they're really yeah. These these issues are fun. To, they're fun to look at. And all right, you, do you want to just like a lightning round? We'll go through a couple of the early adventures. He goes. Yeah, on. let's do it. Um, so the first issue is the one where Spidey has to save John Jameson from the rocket. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a Spidey fan. You know all about John Jameson, I feel like. Yeah, so John Jameson is J. Jonah Jameson's son. He's the golden boy. He showed up a lot in future issues, and he's very important to to the 90s cartoon version of the Venom saga. And he's also a werewolf, but not oh, yet. Oh, yes. I don't know when that happens, though. Um, I know he marries She-Hulk while he's a werewolf. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, great I stuff. recently have only encountered him with regards to Absolute Carnage, the event. So he was in that. Because I guess he had the Carnage... The, oh, yeah, he did have the Venom symbiote at some point. But I think the original time with Venom was... Secret Wars. In the comics, yeah. Secret, uh, yeah. Secret That's War. Where, yeah, in the comics, Peter Parker finds Venom with Secret War. Yeah. What I really love about John Jameson is that the pertinent thing about him is that he's an astronaut, and the way that gets portrayed now is often like he's kind of a space explorer, and that's how he turned into a werewolf, just like on a magic space adventure. But in this, he's like a real NASA astronaut, and like it's 1962, Neil Armstrong is not a name that people know. But John Jameson is here to get into a capsule. Fly around the Earth a little bit, crash. Because they were still in the Mercury era at that point, right? Yeah, that's crazy yeah. to think about. That's so crazy. That's, that's so weird. <laughs> but then, okay, but then you flip through the issue, and the sequence where Spidey has to catch the crashing rocket capsule <laughs> is, like, amazing. Like, Steve Ditko makes this incredible. He makes it really tense. And also, that's a great way to open your first issue. What What's Spider-Man doing? Well, he's stopping a rocket from crashing. And this is, like, the exciting thing in the news right now. This would be like if Spider-Man was, like, punching a Nazi if you were in 1940 or 2020. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, catching a capsule mer- is great. Mm-hmm. Next up, he faces the chameleon. Elias, how do you feel about the chameleon? We're, we're big, both big Spidey fans, so I feel like we probably have uh, big feelings on all the villains. 
I could take or leave him. I could take. I could leave him. Frankly, the chameleon's the worst. I could I take or like... leave him. His design here isn't. It's kind of kind of bad. This I first costume he... is real bad. His costume is bad. He, his scary face is cool. Yeah, I mean. Honestly, most of this, most of the the fight in this issue, I I like Fantastic Four versus Spider Man. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, I was, and so the, and that's crazy. So right away, um, Spider Man's being put into Fantastic Four, and and these guys are real close uh, moving forward. Yeah, especially him and Johnny. Well, maybe not yet, but eventually. Eventually. Eventually, they're they're the same age. They're supposed to be the same age. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, um. Sliding oh, timescale, man. My favorite piece of weird trivia from um uh from these early issues mm-hmm. in the Spider-Man versus the Chameleon story, um, in the very first panel, mm-hmm. Stanley narrates, mm-hmm. but we know him as Peter Palmer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. My favorite part of this is that, as legend has it, everyone always says, and I think this is apocryphal, I, I don't know, St- but Stan Lee made it his own thing where he was just like, oh, yeah, and I was so bad at remembering names, I would just always make them alliterative. Bruce Banner, Scott Summers, bam! And you're just like, um, b- b- I, oh, yeah, that's, Stan, that, that's foolproof, unless you call him Peter Palmer. And then Stan's like, oh, I just played myself. <laughs> I could believe it. I can believe that. I I wonder how that I wonder how that happened because it's the it's the second story in the issue too. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I I mean I guess they're really putting these things out. Uh, Fast and Furious. Yeah, I mean if you hear some of the stories of just working conditions, they were not very good for anyone. Yeah, but so what's funny about this um this chameleon issue is that um the chameleon is now Spidey's first villain and he sucks. <laughs> He's the worst villain. And it's, like, weird that that's his lasting legacy is just that he was first. Because the exciting things that happen in this story are him catching the rocket is really exciting, and him uh, fighting and running away from the Fantastic Four is really exciting. But everything with Chameleon is like, oh, and his first villain is here, and he's very forgettable. Yeah, he can dress up as other people. He can put on a mask. And, and which is crazy to me because of where this is all going, because I, the later villains are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I, I do want to say he has a booking agent in this first issue. That's who Spider-Man. writes him the check to Spider-Man, is the booking agent. And then it's never mentioned again. Bendis has fun with that in Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh, I, well, now I need to read that. I don't want to. Kingpin bites, buys the rights to Spider-Man and then starts selling, making profiting off of Spider-Man merch. Oh, my God. Really good evil plan. Bendis' Ultimate Spider-Man is really good. Oh, my uh, God. Okay, next villain. Next villain is Vulture. He's He's a good design. He looks great. Yeah, he looks great. He's kind of kind of silly. What's amazing about his design is not only the I mean, obviously, he's got the furry collar is very memorable. And the fact that he's got big green feathers and he's in like a little muscle suit. But um, what's amazing to me is his face is from his first appearance to now. His face is always drawn the same. It's so distinctive. Yeah. And he, because of the way they designed the face, he actually looks like a vulture with the bald head and kind of gaunt face pointy nose yeah big good like nose no jaw yeah it's a good it's a good design and even though the the fight is kind of it's all right but also it kind of shows up the aerial the aerial nature of new york city like well there are all these tall buildings if you've got flying you're pretty you're pretty set so i want to tell you i don't much care for the vulture normally i think um he's like one of the less formidable spidey villains yeah but back in the era of robbings things yeah oh just like uh as a as a kid or as an adult if i'm reading a spidey comic and vulture shows up i'm just like oh what's he gonna do just like rob from a helicopter until spider-man can get him that sounds kind of annoying it's not like a like i don't know what what a good vulture plan looks like yeah well dropping spider-man into a 
you know, a tank of water. But but in this scene, I really uh, this is like a cool fight. He get he drops Spidey into the tank of water, and then Spidey's got to escape from the water tower. Like this is um, it's real zippy and dynamic. It's a good use of his powers, and it's also a good you know establishment of you know Mister Scraping and Scrambling by. He's still early on, so he's he's learning. He made a mistake which was not having enough web fluid, and now he's correcting that mistake. Right, exactly. And it's so it's uh, Vulture ends up being a really good foil for Spider-Man, and the flying is really exciting in this. And it's just a shame that Vulture never developed to have like more of a gimmick or like a Vulture-type crime or a signature thing. I mean, so I, I, there are some Vulture stories that I like, but I always uh, found that his motivation wasn't that in the, in the 90s when I was a kid reading this. Uh, he had cancer, and he wanted to get enough money to cure cancer. And I was just like, this just doesn't seem like a good plan to cure cancer. <laughs> I never believed his motivation. You could be curing cancer with this, but instead you were cloning dinosaurs. Yeah, he should have attacked uh, Sauron and gotten Sauron to, made Sauron to cure cancer. That's a Vulture story I would have loved. Vulture yeah. versus Sauron. Why hasn't this ever happened? But, I mean, the best part of Vulture is it gets Peter an entire year's worth of rent. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I he's a very picturesque man. I understand how that picture would go for a lot. But he, but Peter could pay in Forest Hills an entire year's worth of rent. Also, Aunt May is still renting. Um, New York, man, it's brutal. Yeah, in nineteen sixty-two, that's uh, you think about it. You're like, oh wow, oh wow, that that would never happen today. <laughs> Next up, we have the terrible tinkerer in issue number three. Now, I think that's an apt description. I'm gonna. I'm not going to uh, to try to keep track of the numbers because I'm gonna mess them up and embarrass myself. Yeah, I I can keep track. That was issue number three. The, the the tinker. You say you're not a fan. I mean, he's fine. He's got a. He's got you know one of those chins. <laughs> uh, he's got one of those chins, and the aliens have one of those heads. And the the second one of those is a butt. Their heads look like butts. Yep, butt chin, butt head. Um, the reason I like the tinker. Uh, he's not usually if you like most of the time when the tinker shows up at the main villain in something that wouldn't excite me but he answers uh, he's one of those characters who answers a comic book question in this case where do all the crazy villains go to get their stuff and the answer is the tinker builds it for him that's his job he's the mad scientist that he sells weapons to villains yeah i mean that's not really what he does here though here he's nah. here he's just a human face for aliens well he, the aliens it's a very, hired it's him a very to sci-fi con- pulp plot Right, and this is the other thing where I was talking about how... So all the fun in this issue is from the Peter Parker stuff. The aliens are like, whatever. I mean, it's great. There's, like, aliens hiding out in a warehouse, and Peter Parker's got to throw them around. Yeah, but otherwise, it, it's all right. Yeah, but it doesn't... The, oh, and my favorite sequence is when uh, there's the cutaway of the web shooters, and he Peter has to explain all how his gadgets work. Oh, yeah. I really like that. Like, the issue is still great. And these these issues are all really good examples of what you've brought up, which is clever uses of powers and gadgets to make the fights interesting. Like you're you're watching to see how Peter will leverage what he's got to get out of every situation or to defeat the enemy instead of just punch real good, think on the power of friendship, punch real good, kick real good, or suddenly develop a new power, which does happen more often than I would like, but... But, but I, superhero I, comics are about uh, should yeah. be about characters solving problems with superpowers, and that happens a lot in these issues in really delightful ways. Yeah, I buy that a lot of the issue, you know, a, a lot of the powers he develops can have, you know, they're logical, they're fine. Sometimes I'm like, really, come on, you just needed a way out. You couldn't think of one Lee, but we'll 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 get to that later. I'll point out a couple. 
but the, so the next issue introduces um, a character I think is like worth stopping to talk about a little bit, mm-hmm. and that is Doctor Octopus, the only enemy ever to defeat Spider-Man, according to the title page. I was gonna say I don't. I think not more than three issues later, we have someone else defeat Spider-Man. I'm just I couldn't stand the man. I didn't make those words up. Um, yeah. So I the very first Marvel stuff I was consuming was probably the X-Men cartoon when I was like five years old. Mm-hmm. And that led me into the Spider-Man cartoon. And as a kid, I think I liked Spider-Man a little bit more than the X-Men. And then when I was a teenager, I liked the X-Men a little bit more than Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. But I watched a bunch of that uh, Spider-Man cartoon. And from that cartoon, I always thought Doc Ock was lame. Really? Yeah, I always thought that Doc Ock was he's just like a schlubby old professor He's got octopus eye, uh, arms, and um, when he fights Spider-Man, he just, like, blocks with his arms a bunch, and then he throws stuff around with his arms, and his plan, and he was always just, like, robbing banks to do, like, uh, I don't, that's, all, I guess I never, I never bought his motivation either when I was a kid. Now Doc Ock is, like, my favorite villain. He's one of my top five. Wow, that's quite a change. I loved it. Well, a lot of it has to do with Superior Spider-Man, which is a Doc Ock mm, story. Fair. Um, but I guess... There's something about villainy in this era in the 1960s, the mm-hmm. how pompous he always is and how how certain and how uh, he's always brought down by his own sins. Like he's always too prideful or greedy and that always is his downfall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's just he's stylish. He's hideous. His haircut is so bad, but he's so <laughs> he, well cartooned. His face kind of looks like he was hit hit with a shovel. Yeah. It looks like a shovel you hit with another shovel. <laughs> But he's – I actually really like how when he first starts out, he's not actually that – he's not the, the person – he's not evil villain with big arms. He's – you know, he's a little bit a little bit pompous, but what we get of him is basically just saying he's just very smart. And he's like, I can make radiation better. Like, he, he doesn't have that megalomaniacal aspect to him until – after he is uh, in traditional Marvel method, bathed in radiation. Yeah, he he starts off an asshole, and they they say they say that like the the radiation brain damage might make him lead him to do things he wouldn't have done before. Yeah, which he gets played with in Superior Spider-Man Volume Two, which I believe is by Christos Gage. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they do a story of what if Doc Ock cured his brain damage? Hmm. What would he what his personality be like? Um, I, I read that. It's a, it's kind of. It's kind of good. I think you'd like that run. It's a good Spider-Man comic, too. This is another place where you can... There's a b- bunch of shots that Sam Raimi borrows right from these panels. Uh, yeah. That's a that's a, that's another take on it. He's a lot more sympathetic in that movie than here. Yeah, that's true. But I love Doc Ock in this. Just to be clear, I hadn't read this comic when I was a kid. Uh, I didn't like him from the 90s cartoon, but he's he's hilarious. Yeah, he, he's and he's actually a threat. You feel... You're like, oh, wow, he could actually take spider-man down and keep him down yeah and he's so goofy looking and he he acts so silly but he but he's still very menacing i just they really thread the needle with this silly character and he's got a great look and it's clear why he's powerful like he clearly knows what he's doing and he's got six arms which is kind of kind of i guess a foil to spider-man He's got. I'm sure that's how it came about, right? A, a different version of of Spider-Man's powers. Instead of speed and strength, he's got the arms. Well, and uh, you could just tell Stanley was just like uh, spiders have eight uh, legs. Uh, what else has eight legs for him to be his nemesis? Uh, an octopus done. Done. But he's got six arms and two legs. That's how we'll add him up. <laughs> 
Although there's that that little aside with Johnny Johnny Storm showing up and being like two plus two equals three. Don't be an idiot. Don't drop out of school. <laughs> I'm like, all right, Johnny. Thanks. But I like Johnny being in this, and this is the stuff that eventually leads to the Avengers movies, right? Is like the the fun of seeing your favorite characters in multiple magazines, mm-hmm. and seeing them interact in different ways. Yeah, and it's clever. Like, what if um, the celebrity Human Torch was doing an assembly at Spider-Man's school? Yeah, and he also inspired Spider-Man to go back to, like, try again. Yeah, which uh, actually affects the plot, and it, it connects Johnny to this important moment in Spider-Man's career when he first faces Doc Ock. Because you can tell from these early issues that Doc Ock is supposed to be Spidey's arch nemesis. Like, they're going to be together forever. Yeah, at that and, point, Lee, Lee and Ditko were probably going to try to push him and be like, he's he's the big bad that, that'll keep returning if people like him enough. Yeah, and I I um I never bought Doc Ock for that, again, until I was much older. I just, it's, I, I really, I, I come around hard on Doc Ock. I really love him. <laughs> well, next. Yeah, so do you want to go through, like, the next couple, I don't have as strong feelings about the stories, but I'm struck by the villains. Yeah, I was just going to say that the the next one is the next villain from the Sam Raimi movies, Sandman. Yeah, so Sandman looks incredible, right? Like, Dit- this is maybe Ditko's best art in these issues. Yeah, I love the way he, he portrays the powers of Sandman. Yeah, he has, both Lee and Ditko have so much fun with it. And I think this is also, like, the most panels per page of any of the issues thus far. He uses the nine-panel grid in full a lot. He even breaks it up so there are, like, six really thin vertical panels on the bottom. And this yeah. is also kind of a turning point in Peter's life. Not Peter's life, but, like, like in the personal high school aspects, this is a bit of a turning point for Peter and his interactions with the other characters. What do you mean? I mean that, like, Liz and Flash, the or, or Liz—what's your last name? Liz Allen. Liz Allen and, and Flash Thompson, they're, they are the two other big uh, civilian Spider-Man, char- uh, uh, Spider-Man adjacent characters that show up often outside of the Daily Bugle. And Peter, this is kind of where Spider-Man gets big at school. Liz kind of falls in love with Spider-Man and, and her and Flash kind of start fighting. And I think this is where the dynamic between the characters gets good and starts changing. And then it develops more as the issues go on. Yeah, and this is also the Daily Bugle story picks up in this one too. Uh, Betty Brant comes more into focus. Mm-hmm. And I, honestly, I, uh, I didn't even know. I knew nothing about Liz Allen, Betty Brant, and uh, Flash Thompson because they're never around in the modern comics. I think Flash is dead. Uh, Flash did die recently in continuity, but Flash Thompson is the star of one of my favorite Spider-Man spinoffs, the Agent Venom series by Rick Remender. Oh, he was Venom for a while. He was my favorite Venom. He's the only worthwhile Venom. Venom's a Venom's a Oof. great look, a boring character. Eddie Brock has never interested me in the slightest, but um, Matt Gargan as Venom was kind of an interesting idea, but never amounted to anything. But Flash Thompson as Venom was great. That series rules. Was it Flash in in the Sam Raimi movie? No, it's, it a, it's it's Eddie. It's as played by Topher Grace. Okay, but um, yeah. So th- those are characters. I'm I'm really glad to see the supporting cast i enjoy seeing just random characters get developed and and increase and i also had no idea that like spider-man had so many people that he was either going after or were going after him well that's kind of like archie which which was going on for a little while at this point because archie starts in the 50s yeah um, and, like, and they do the a really two, good job the with two this. big names everyone that talks about are gwen stacy and mary jane 
but no one talks about Betty Brandt. No one talks about Liz Allen. Uh, Betty, I love Betty Brandt and Liz Allen. Um, Liz Allen gets a really fun arc in uh, Dan Slott Spider Man, where she becomes like a, a chemical mogul, huh. and uh, starts to do, and like it has all is financially tied up in all this mad scientist stuff. It's really fun, and. Um, and Betty Brant's around a lot in the 80s. She's got a great uh, story in the 80s where she marries uh, Ned Leeds, who's currently a character in the movies, the MCU Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. And Betty Brant uh, is also involved in that Flash Thompson Agent Venom story. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, and her brother is the main villain. Comic books. Comic books. Yeah, there's this, the, the extended supporting soap opera cast of uh, Spider-Man is really fun. And something that uh, there's some more famous members like J. Jonah Jameson and Aunt May, but like there's there's lots of characters and they're they come and go and they're very fun. I love them. Yeah, they're all great. So we've got we got a few more villains. All right, so Sandman is um, a fun adventure, really visual. If I was a kid and I read this comic, I would be excited for Sandman to come back. Just like yeah, he he's nice to see. I don't I don't know if I'd want to see him as like the central villain again. Well, I just want to see more more sand sand antics. Right, exactly. Just Santix. like if you can come up with a story that gives me Santix, 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 um, and you could draw them looking this good, I'll just keep reading comics like this. This is so fun. Yeah. Then we got the Doctor Doom story. Now I've said on this podcast before, but Doctor Doom is not top five villains. Doctor Doom is number one. Mm -hmm. There's no beating Doctor Doom. He's the greatest villain. And and he's great in this. I okay. love that his. Evil it sounded like you were you were good, you were you were prepping me for for you to say something different. Never, 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 never. And I love that his evil plan in this. The best part about Doctor Doom is no matter what his evil plan is, you're like, yeah, that tracks. Uh, whether or not he's sending the Fantastic Four back in time to steal Blackbeard's gold so he could have it, I guess. Or in this one where he's just like, people are mean to Spider-Man. I bet he would work for me. I would be nice to him. And Spider-Man's just like, no way, Chief. You, you creep me out and you want me to do evil stuff. And uh, he's just like, yeah, but I'd be really nice to you if you did that evil stuff for me. And then they fight, and it's great. It's a good fight, too. Fights with the Doom bot. <laughs> he just threw... I, I think my favorite part of the issue, though, has to be the initial... The initial Doctor Doom running away from the Fantastic Four. That whole oh, page. He just jumps off the plane. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Ah, oh, I bet Spider-Man would join me, but first I have to get away from the Fantastic Four. Boop. He, he just builds jumps like out. a... Spider Summoner using a spider and magic and sorcery. Yeah. That's so cool. Doctor Doom's the fucking best. The spider telepathy. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he's got, like, a finger laser, which is real nifty looking. I like it every time he busts out the finger laser. Yeah, the fight's really good. Ditko draws the hell out of it. I love Doctor Doom. Can I tell you the tragedy of Doctor Doom, though? He looks like a fish. No, that's that's uh, featured on a bug, in my opinion. Oh, I, I just bet he looks like a fish in this one panel on that page, and I can't get enough of it. <laughs> um, in his first appearance in Fantastic Four, he's got a pet vulture. And as far as I know, that pet vulture has never appeared again, and Doctor Doom should be rocking out with a vulture on his shoulder all the time. I bet it's hard to keep, because then he would have to build pet vulture for his Doom bots. Robot vultures? That rules! But do you know how difficult that would be? He's Doctor Doom. He does difficult stuff every day. I guess. I think he 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 doesn't want to create that many Doom bots. I if you think that you do not even begin to comprehend the magnificence that is Doom. Doom is dying to build Doom bots. If there's a plan that needs more Doom bots, that's the plan he's going to choose. <laughs> you should be the PR manager for Latveria. Now I I, f I feel like there's like a I'm being paid off by a Putin joke somewhere in here that's uncomfortable. Mm. 
I love that Dr. Doom kidnaps the wrong Spider-Man. He kidnaps Flash Thompson, <laughs> yeah. who's just trying to prank Peter Parker, being like, hey, I'm Spider-Man. And Peter Parker's like, no, you're not. Yeah. Great prank, Flash. This is why you're going to be Venom one day. We get some really good Peter Parker looking like he's going to murder someone face, but with the split. I really like that panel, and I don't know if it was intended or if Lee saw the panel and went, I can play with this where the murderous half of Peter is thinking all the, you know, the terrible thoughts. And then on the other half with Spider-Man, it's all the positive thoughts. Of yeah, like the, I wonder about the, that. I want to, I'm, I'm just going to leave Flash to die. Who cares? And then he's like, but I'm Spider-Man. I have, I, I gotta. This is my mess. That's a really good point. Yeah, I wonder how um, closely they were working together when they came up with that. Or if uh, Ditko drew the image. Or if Ditko just submitted the picture and then uh, Lee was like, no, draw half a Spider-Man face over it. Like, I wonder whose idea that was. It's so well communicated. I really like that panel and the way it uses that uses the, the comic form to really show this the two halves of Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems like such a Stan Lee story idea. Yeah. Now, after Doom... <laughs> We get the lizard. Yeah, we get the lizard. I don't have much to say about the lizard. He looks he looks really silly. I like his silly like look. He looks like a lizard. Yeah, he looks like a lizard. I, but, you know, he's like a... I like that Spider-Man gets his first monster villain. I like the lizard. Um, the lizard scared me when I was a kid. Scares me a little bit now. I think he's, he's solidly scary. But what I like about this issue, although they don't take as much advantage of it as they could, but I love this con- and the concept of this. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we see Spider-Man leave New York. Yeah. and He goes to Florida. And again, there's the the Stanley. Well, how does he get there? He has no money. People would notice if he's gone. Right, 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 right. Stanley always has these practical concerns of what it would be like to be Spider-Man, and I feel like that wasn't common in superhero stories at the time. No, especially because he's a teen ager. <laughs> right, <laughs> a teen hyphen ager. But I love also like Spider-Man's in the Everglades. He can't swing off of buildings anymore. Is kind of fun. I love when he's out of his element, and I love he has to like stay in a hotel with J. Jonah Jameson. I feel like they could have had more fun with that. Yeah, but you gotta gotta save room for Spider-Man punches the lizard and gives the lizard that that good good tragic monster backstory. Yeah, solid tragic. Mo- so I like this issue. I like the lizard in general. Um, of the villains who have appeared so far, he's probably. I I would rather see Vulture again. I would rather see um Doctor Doom in every issue. I mean, hey, you get your wish the next issue. That's true. Uh, yeah. Then the next issue we get Vulture again, and this is like a good issue actually. Um. His prison break is pretty fun when he flies over the wall in his uh, homemade vulture rig. I really love the way that he draws the vulture rig in the cell. He looks just like a, like a kite. He looks like a kite, but it's but it's impressive. You, he looks like he's making vulture wings out of garbage, and you're just like, yeah. wow, this guy must be a genius. Like, it really sells him. I've and got then... complicated feelings about Michael Keaton as Vulture, but I actually think that the conceit of the character as somebody who steals from like uh, technology from the other villains— I think that was a good way to make him. I think that was a really good way of bringing the vulture in. Even I think so he too. I think that's really clever. Like the vulture, you know, with the bald head and everything. Yeah, it's hard for me to. Um, it's hard for me to be mad at that movie because I think that's really clever. And Michael Keaton's just Michael Keaton. Oh my god, you're gonna start. I have a whole rant about this. Uh, Michael Keaton's an amazing actor, but I think it's very gauche to appear in a movie called Birdman, saying, oh, "I'm so sad that I'm a Birdman," and then he stars in a movie where he literally plays in a Birdman, and they give him like millions of dollars. That's that's pretty gauche, Michael Keaton. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. I mean, he couldn't have known that he would have been cast as the Vulture. 
I, I'm saying once you've played a Birdman about how sad he is to be a Birdman, you're not allowed to play a Birdman anymore. Well, he wasn't sad that he's a Birdman in Birdman. He's sad that he's only known as being the Birdman and can't do anything else. So then his next big flex is he's just like, you know what? Now I'm going to play a Birdman in one of these stupid movies about Birdman. And then he made the stupid Birdman really cool. Yeah, I'm just saying, Michael Keaton's a complicated man. I think I think that's a pretty big balls on you, Mr. Keaton. <laughs> Pretty big check, too. Um, a pretty big check. Exactly. The next issue features something I know you really wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, the living We've grave. Got issue number eight, C, Spider-Man versus the living brain. Okay, so, so the reason I just love to stop and talk about the living brain is my main takeaway from these early issues of Spider-Man, and the thing that I really wish uh, modern comics writers would look back to these issues for inspiration for them, Mm-hmm. Is sure Vulture comes back, Doc Ock comes back. We do repeat villains, but the idea is every villain, every issue, there's a new villain. You're trying something, and if you liked writing them, you can think of good ideas. You bring them back again. Yeah. And in modern comics, obviously, there's a long legacy to a lot of these characters, so you often repeat villains. But I can't stand when you're reading a comic where the conflict almost doesn't matter. I feel like you get this a lot in um, Punisher and Black Widow comics, where just like she's a spy, so she's fighting a bunch of guys wearing suits, and they're trying to steal a briefcase from a train with the nuclear codes. And it's like it's supposed to be a character piece about Black Widow. But I'm like, this is a comic book. Give me a wild idea. Give me the chameleon or the vulture, Doc Ock, Sandman, the lizard, Doctor Doom, the living brain. The living brain. So the living brain's thing is that he's a robot. <laughs> <And> that's, <it. laughs> that's his whole deal. It's not even that he's sentient. It's not even that gender essentialism has taken over and we're calling the living brain he. No, it's just the living brain gets a short circuit and goes on a rampage. Yeah, it's just like a shitty old 60s robot out of control <laughs> that Spider-Man has to stop. And this is like the first story where I'm just like, this is it's not a legendary villain. This is like kind of their first whiff, where they're like, I don't know, he fights the living brain, he's an out-of-control robot. Sure. And it's not a bad issue by any means, but like it's the first uh, thing that I, um, if I was a kid reading this in the 60s, I wouldn't be like, oh, I hope Spidey fights the living brain again. Yeah, this definitely feels like a one-off villain that, I don't even think villain is the right word. I think conflict. Well, Spider-Man fights the living brain, but the living brain isn't... Eh. Uh, the living brain comes back. What? In Dan Slott's Superior Spider-Man, the living brain is his robot butler. Okay. And that's where the living brain ends up going. I'm just glad oh. that the... See? The circle is yeah. complete. It's perfect. The, the circle is complete. Um, that's about the living brain. I just think that it's yeah. amazing that he's a dud of a villain but the issue is still really fun it's just like this is their first idea like I don't know Spider-Man fights a robot sometimes and then um, Dan Sly I, I like those those winking nods to classic Spider-Man continuity it's just like we sure haven't seen the living brain in a while yeah I didn't like the backup story from this issue even though the it was Jack, Jack Kirby drawing Steve Ditko inking but oh. it's yeah 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 <laughs> alright the, the action's fine the art's good the writing's just why is Spider-Man fighting the human torch He's, like, really, really mean. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It was not my favorite backup. No, I agree. I guess I like it just because uh, the Kirby and the Ditko mixing happen so rarely. Yeah. Um, and it's that's, like, the exciting thing to see. But, yeah, it's a pretty lousy uh, story. Yeah. That's why, because it's part of another issue with the living brain, it's fine. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, that's the first issue of this early run that's, like, uh, not as phenomenal as the rest. But yeah. I kind of, uh, because I I just, like, feel like 
that kind of makes it special in its own way of how, how silly and much of a disaster yeah. it is. It's it's actually a very traditional story for for I think Stan for for the era because it's it's very pulpy, very pulp sci-fi. Yeah, totally. So, um, and then we get a good good issue. Yeah. Next issue, we get Electro. Now, um, I have strong feelings about Electro. Elias, what do you think of Electro? He's fine. He shoots things. His costume looks utterly ridiculous. Yeah, this is, is uh, quite a tough design. With his, with the, with his Electro Pace. <laughs> he does have Electro Pace. Um, I, yeah, I'd, he's fine. This is okay. So this isn't where Electro is going to develop from here because he's pretty run of the mill in this. He shoots lightning. He's kind of a, like a thuggish jerk. Yeah, my favorite part is J. Jonah Jameson absolutely believing that Electro and Spider-Man are the same person <laughs> and then having to offer a retraction. I think, though, Electro, it, it's it's present here, but it, I think he gets a really clear gimmick as a villain that I really like as a villain gimmick. Mm-hmm. What is it? Which is um, Electro, he's a he's like a utility worker. He's like a, he's not a, a scientist or an inventor, and he's not even really an electrician. He's, he's like a technician, and he's not a very curious guy. He knows how to climb a fire pole. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I clearly I know a lot about it, so I shouldn't be... Uh, talking down this job but my point is he's like an incurious man who through an accident is given forces over like an a fundamental force of nature he can control electromagnetism that's like one of the four fundamental forces of the universe and he like uses it to like kind of short out helicopters sometimes because he's kind of just like not a very curious person and he doesn't want to study this tremendous power that just sounds like a lot of work yeah and i love that as an idea for a character and i like it so you know when Electro shows up and he's just like he always gets outsmarted because he's kind of an idiot with electrical powers, but he's so powerful. And yeah. that's why I think he sucks in the movie when he's played by Jamie Foxx, because once you make him a scientist and you just make him this like sweaty uh, genius guy, you completely take away everything that makes Electro special, which is that he's kind of a schlub. He's, he's like a lazy slob. He's a lazy slob also from a working class background instead of a scientist background. Like, his, yeah. his job is explicitly blue-collar. Yeah, and I like I like the idea that um, if he wanted to, he could be, like, one of the most powerful villains in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. But, like, he just doesn't care. He just wants to, like, make mischief. He's like, I'm, I want to get back at Jonah. Yeah, he always wants to get back at somebody. He's just, like, a petty bitch, and I like that. I, once you compli- yeah. I, I love Electro, and uh, I don't like it when you complicate him, so I love this story. So fun. A lot of these stories are both surprisingly simple and also fairly complex. Not, like, necessarily very complex, but enough. Complicated enough when you when you kind of start picking up a part in a way that's a lot of fun to, you know, move through. And then we get the Enforcers <laughs> and the Big Man. Elias, how do you feel about the Enforcers? I... Ugh... Elias, I love the Enforcers. <sighs> they bored me. Um, they're fine in this issue. You're right. Yeah. They are not... Um... Their intro is not very engaging. You know what it is? I'm going to make this positive. I think they're ruined by the big man. The big man sucks. Oh, yeah. The big man's hot garbo. Yeah. The big man's super boring. Um, but the Enforcers are so good. Fancy Dan, they... Ox, and Montana. I do love the way they're introduced. <laughs> That's a great sequence. Big man. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He's another black mask grip off. I just like uh, when's our astonishing X? Is this after our astonishing X Men episode? Yeah, yeah, astonishing X Men was was last time. 
Yes, uh, scheduling what it is. Uh, so we had Joe on as a guest. Joe loves the Enforcers, too, because Joe loves that one of them, there's Ox, and his thing is that he's really big. There's Montana, and his thing is that he's a cowboy. And there's Fancy Dan, and his thing is that he has a little mustache and he knows karate. And his power is knowing karate. No, 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 judo. Judo, sorry. His power is knowing judo. And that's his whole power, is that he knows judo. Just like, I feel like that shouldn't get you as far as it does, but he's like a classic villain who first appeared in an early issue of Spider-Man, so he's never going away. And he's a guy with a mustache who knows judo. I love this line. He's strong and swift, but it's still three against one. And when a guy is as fast as Fancy Dan is also a (laughs) judo expert, what chance can Spider-Man have? Yeah, and later these guys go on to be like kingpin minions, which I think um, raises their profile because Big Man is a really boring crime boss. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty boring. But yeah, I think the Enforcers are just uh, lovely. They're a throwback to Dick Tracy. Yeah, I think that's why the Big Man is the way he is. He's He feels like a, a Dick Tracy villain. He even looks like one. Or uh, Will Eisner's The Shadow. Uh, not The Shadow, Will Eisner's The Spirit, or The Shadow. Yeah. Not by Will Eisner. No. And then the guy who turns out to be the big man has a really tall forehead. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I bet half the mask was just forehead. You're right, though. That's why he has to wear that mask the way it is. (laughs) I like the Enforcer's second appearance a lot more. Um, Where's their second appearance? It's in, I think they work under Doc Ock in issue 11. Oh, I thought you meant um, in another series, like in uh, Daredevil. No, 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 no. No, they're not under Doc Ock in, in issue 11. That's the one with the ship and the very unfortunately named. Uh, oh, I think I, I think they're, I think they're in the annual. Yeah, Spidey fights Doc Ock again. This is the second time he's got a recurring villain. But you again, I really you get the vibe that Doc Ock is supposed to be Spidey's ultimate foe. No, I'm wrong. It was issue 14 with Green Goblin, which we did not read for this. No, but you couldn't resist, huh? No, I, could, I couldn't resist. I also was reading in order in the trade. So Ah, I jumped to the uh, annual. There's a Doc Ock issue, and um, that's still a lot of fun, I think. Yep. Oh, well, actually, it's, it, there's technically two Doc Ock Returns issues, but the second Doc Ock one really is focused on uh, the introduction of our final villain, Craven the Hunter. Is uh, Craven's? Craven's introduced in issue 12. What issue is? Did I? No. Um, oh, you're right. Craven is introduced in issue 12. Yeah, and, but, but Doc Ock is in both 11 and 12. You're right, you're right. This is why I'm confused. Yeah. Norm, up until this point, it's been one villain per issue, even when it's a returning villain. And now now we got Doc Ock with three, count them, three appearances and a new villain plus Doc Ock. I guess technically 11 and 12 are, your, are our first two-parter. Yeah, although there's been kind of the running threads of all his personal business, but that's... Yeah, but that's ongoing sitcom, not sitcom, soap opera stuff. Yeah. Wait, I'm looking for Craven in these issues. I, I I also read more than we were supposed to, but I think it's just Doc Ock goes to the zoo and frees a bunch of zoo animals. I thought Craven was in issue 12. I thought oh, so, no, too. no, you're right. But it's he just does Doc just free a bunch of zoo animals. Which is a real Craven move. But no, it's Doc Ock by himself. So we'll have to talk about Craven another time. Another time. Well, we will. Well, we're going to talk about him because now we get to talk about Spider-Man Annual Number 1. Unless you've got stuff to say about Doc Ock's returns. No, I know. No, let's, go, let's go and talk about the annual. Because the annual is really like a special comic occurrence. Yeah. So for those who don't know, an annual is often published on the fifth week of a month when, uh, or at least now, uh, for a long time, annuals were special occasions or there wasn't really something codified. But definitely since the 90s, it's been more codified of 
long-running books often get annuals on the fifth of a month uh, because there's or the fifth Wednesday of a month because comics generally come out on Wednesdays thanks to Diamond Distributors, although DC has switched off that. Anyway, we're getting two in the weeds. They're special issues. They're often double length. They should be self-contained stories, but nine times out of ten nowadays, they're just continuations or completions of current arcs, which is, I don't like that, but. Yeah, I like it. Well, I like when the annuals are a a special occurrence. And this one, it feels so special. That's why I wanted to end it with this. This one is like an incredible, if just, um, I I don't have to imagine. I was going to say, imagine if you were a kid. But just like imagine that you're a person who's reading this. You're having a really fun time with this adventure. And you want to see where it goes. And you don't know where Spider-Man's going. And then you get this amazing Sinister Six issue. This feels like a, like, it really feels like a special treat. Yeah. This this first annual. Right even down to the presentation, not even accounting for how long it is or who shows up. Just the the physical presentation of the pages feels special. Yeah, well, so like uh, right early on, you see uh, Doc Ock uh, psychically commands his arms to free him from jail and... Yeah, which feels a little bit like bullshit, but... Uh, but I remember uh, this happening in cartoons, and this uh, this image of uh, his arms crawling across the floor and then him sliding into them like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, just I like think that's it's, a good, it's a good addition, but it does kind of feel like, oh, they just needed to give him something. Um, and then the image of Spider-Man uh, upside down and stealing Jonah's newspaper. I just like there's a bunch of uh, images in this that are like burned into my brain from just like years of different Spider-Man media. It's very good, yeah. I love that uh, you, you get the little Thor cameo to tell you to read Thor in his comic. This this entire issue, as much as I love it, feels like an excuse to hawk every other Marvel book that was on the stands at the time. Because we get all these cameos throughout, and usually the characters aren't doing anything of importance to the story. But I also really appreciate it because it makes the universe feel cohesive. It's like, well, why aren't these other heroes showing up? Well, this is why, or this is why they didn't think they needed to, or they do show up, but it's too late. So, and that's not really done nowadays, because there's always that argument against comics of, well, it's New York, there's 70 million heroes, why aren't one of them helping when but this I would big event goes down? Because do you ever go back and you read a comic from a couple years ago, um, and you're just like, wait, so was this when Daredevil was evil, or, like, and you just, like, don't remember? Yeah. Um, I like that this is just like a, letting you know where you are in the continuity, where everyone is, what their status quo is. Like it's helpful to, to even for Spider-Man to peek them, yeah, to help center you and like what the, what's happening in the story, which wasn't their agenda here, but I think that's like a really useful purpose, and I kind of wish they still did something like that. And it can also get you really interested in the character, like seeing Doctor Strange walk by in you know ectoplasm form. I'm like. <gasps> I want to know what's up with this guy, so I might yeah. pick up Strange Tales. Yeah, and I, I I would have been that kid. The Sinister Six shows up, and they are made up. They are led by Dr. Octopus, and they are Electro, Mysterio, Vulture, Sandman, and Kraven the Hunter. And I just, like, certainly the Sinister Six aren't the first supervillain team-up, but they, they, I still, they're still, like, you feel it, right? Like, you feel like, oh, we have a rogues gallery now. This is real. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's... It, it feels like an important event, an important development. And I'm fighting with my cat because my cat's trying to get to the mic. <laughs> I think it, it really raises Spider-Man's profile because it makes him feel like he's in this universe of other interesting characters. Yeah. Um, 
in this way that, like, uh, the X-Men show up here. In the 60s, the X-Men couldn't have had six interesting villains on a team. They didn't have that many. <laughs> uh, the Fantastic Four, like, couldn't have because that's not the kinds of adventures they had. Yeah, but they show up and they, they're like, oh, that's Spider-Man. He can handle himself. I bet he's just goofing around. Oh, everyone. Ant-Man shows up. Iron Man shows up. Great. Uh, everyone shows up for at least a panel. And then you get these full-page uh huge uh, images of spider-man fighting each of the villains and each of these feels like a, a trading card yeah yeah i think i had in my notes that this felt like like each one kind of got their own it, it made it feel important yeah and they're, and they're all just as fantastic images too just like really um putting on display the spidey and the villain and their dynamic yeah although i i did write here when he's fighting electro i'm like that's not how electricity works, Peter. <laughs> when he's no. grounding himself, I'm like, I don't quite think that's how it works. That's certainly how grounding yourself works. Yeah, yeah Stanley was not a science major. He was an artist. He's a science major. I mean, I guess I don't have much more to say about this. I just think what a culmination of these issues that you get a bunch of the villains teaming up, and what a fun, exciting. Uh, the energy hasn't. Uh, these, there's really these are magic issues to me. Like, uh, I think anyone could have a fun time and open them up if you appreciate it as a historical artifact. Yeah, and especially I think annual number one. You don't even need to know anything about these villains. Enough is done to show you who they are and how they work. Although I, I do love how Electro's just driving around in his costume in, in broad daylight. <laughs> and J. Jonah Jameson looks out the window and is like, wait a minute, is that Betty Brant and Peter's aunt getting into a vehicle with Electro? I Yeah, clearly he doesn't realize what that costume looks like or he would wear something different. Clearly. But then <laughs> Betty and... Oh, cat. Cat attack. But then Betty and, and uh, Aunt May are treated as like guests in doc ock's home he's like let me bring you some tea and cookies while i send <laughs> while i send all of these other villains after peter fabulous stuff <laughs> and again ditko just like crushing it um with uh you can tell that he was trying to make this special on his uh, for his part too yeah 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 I don't really have much else to say about this issue either. Oh, but I, I do I do also like that in the back we get a breakdown of all of the villains thus far and a little little page describing them and another splash page about them, which is really cool. And it really makes you um, feel like this is an ongoing universe. It's going to last beyond the story. It it it, it the I, I'm like really at a loss for words. Like the superhero universe of it is really uh, sold by how much this feels like it goes beyond this story that you're holding. Yeah. The promise that there's so much more is always a um, something that I think uh, keeps people at arm's length from superhero universes because it like, makes it seem intimidating. You can never truly read all of it or so you feel like. Mm -hmm. And what counts and what doesn't count. But also the promise that um, you just read this story. This comic's only been going on for a year, but it already feels like it's been around forever. Yeah. Living Brain gets its own page. And so does... And this is the best. The first one is The Burglar, first appearing in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And at the top, a gallery of Spider-Man's most famous foes. Which, sure, I guess he's a famous foe, but he never shows up again. The Burglar has a better costume than the Chameleon, though, so... Oh, yeah. God, he still looks stupid in this page. Although the, the face masks are genuinely creepy. Um, the, Yeah, the masks have always been creepy. So, yeah, Elias, creepy. you had never read these issues before, right? Nope, never read them. 
how do you usually do with older comics like this? Usually I'm not so great with them. Usually they, they're like, I'm like, all right, that's fine. But I had a lot of fun with these. I had a lot of fun with them. And I understand, reading these now, I still understand why they were so popular and why Spider-Man took off. And that's not always the case when you go back to like an origin or the first issues of something. And yeah, I'm constantly amazed how even the the worst of these issues were still enjoyable. Yeah, there's really this magical electricity. And um, sure, that that wasn't just electro. I always try to avoid that. <laughs> um, but I just uh, you go back and you read um, the first appearance of Hal Jordan, and it, it, I don't know, it just doesn't have the same uh, alchemy that this has. Am I, or do you think I'm crazy? No, no, I think I think the team of Lee and Ditko really knocked it out of the park with all of these these issues, and it's something that I feel like I could read these comics again and again which is not something i can say about a lot of comics that i read now like not to say that there aren't a lot of comics that i could return to yeah but these are built to be single issues they're built to be smaller experiences that you can return to over and over again whereas modern books are built as part one of whatever for a larger trade that maybe you could read again but really is just there to continue like some other story or just to continue the ip which is very cynical, but... The best modern comics do both. Like, Immortal yeah. Hulk is a comic that uh, each issue in the early run of that was a completely self-contained story, and they also advanced uh, the ongoing soap opera of this new status quo for Bruce Banner. And that's exactly what I want to see out of my comics. And he's and it's still doing that. Some issues are just one, one-offs. Others are, you know, two or three parts. It feels long while also feeling short, and I really like that. It's a lot. It is less accessible than these because you could ish- enter on issue sixteen and you would lose absolutely nothing. Right. But it's more enjoyable when you read them all. Yeah, I think that's a strong recommend from both of us. Uh, yeah. If you've never read these issues before, you might be surprised at how much you enjoy them. Yeah, genuinely check them out. Do note that they are older, and so you know, yes. it's, it's you know the misogyny is still there. Yeah, the, the, especially in the way Stanley writes women. It's uh. Yeah. The thing that has aged the worst, unfortunately. Yeah. It's not... Thankfully, the art is not very egregious in the, oh, look, here's, here's just butt right in the center. No, no, it's, it's not, not very like cheesy. This not is soon after uh, the comics code went into effect, so uh, they were very concerned with stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Before we go, I do want to credit yes. the letterers. Thank you. I was about to ask if you remember, because I know you're better about this than I am. Yeah. So we already credited the the colorists. I don't know who the original colorists were. Unfortunately, they don't get credits in these no, they in don't. these collections, which kind of sucks. This totally. with these older comics, we just don't know um, unless we've got you know the originals, and I don't. It's possible they didn't credit the colorists. I don't think they originally did, although I'm sure there are historians who have strong, substantiated opinions. But I do not know off the top of my head. But yeah. the letterers, we do know. So letterers, we do know. We've got. My cat attacking the the mic again. Jesus. <laughs> we have Sam Rosen and Art Simek. And we have... i got to pull up the list again. Uh, uh, I see here uh, John okay. D'Agostino. John D'Agostino yeah. and John Duffy. Yep. And those are, the, those are the other two. It's a fairly consistent set of letters. Uh, yeah. Sam, Sam and Art do most of them for the first 20-something 20, 20 issues. But... Um, 
I'm glad you enjoyed this as much as me, Elias. I think sometime we should do the an, a similar read for the early issues of Fantastic Four, which I find just as fun. Yeah, I'd I'd be excited. I also like I liked seeing the Hulk here because he <laughs> it was nice full sentence Hulk. Oh yeah, sixty Hulk is wild. You, you don't see very often, or you hadn't seen until I guess more recent. We are not reading Hulk or Fantastic Four for next time, though. We are reading a much stranger and more recent comic. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so we are reading S.H.I.E.L.D. by Jonathan Hickman and Dustin Weaver. So <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. is yeah, 13 issues. Shield is. <laughs> uh, we'll get more into the details during the episode, but it's two series, each one named S.H.I.E.L.D., issues one through six, and then S.H.I.E.L.D. Infinity, and the reading order, because we have to specify that the reading order exists, is volume one, one through six, which is collected as Architects of Forever, and then you can read S.H.I.E.L.D. Infinity, or that could be read at the end, because that's at, that's at the end of the second trade, uh, and then S.H.I.E.L.D. volume two, volume one, one through six, collected as The Human Machine. So that's Architects of Forever and then The Human Machine. The only reason I have to specify this is because there was also a trade called The Return, which was published before the second series finished. And because they both share the same name and they're both six issues long, and there's nothing else indicating that one comes before the other on the trades. I have the uh, Architects of Forever uh, collection on my shelf but i have to read the other one digitally yeah so don't be uh put off by the confusing name this is a wild series about the secret history of the marvel universe it involves a bunch of historical figures and a bunch of fictional historical figures if you've never read this before you've never read a marvel comic like this and it's very groovy and cool and i've never read the end of it before i've only read the uh, first half so it will be exciting yeah i'm really excited all of you out there you can find it on marvel unlimited you can find it on comiXology unlimited i believe it's not on hoopla i looked <sighs> it's not there so unless they've added it since uh we recorded which is possible the marvel marvel hadn't put a lot on hoopla and they've been adding more over the years um but if your if your library has the trade collections make sure you read it architects of forever and then the human machine uh otherwise you may have to purchase it or check it out from from there or just listen to the episode without reading it that's fine too you might be very very lost because it's a hickman comic uh, unlike spidey where we could just be like here's a name you might recognize and a ridiculous <laughs> adventure instead of being like here's a lecture it's going to be like so when nostradamus was in that dungeon with leonardo da vinci and they fought the sun eater yeah uh get ready it's gonna be a fun time and we might have uh, a few special special bits about it but until then jake where can people find you on the larger interwebs if you want to see me on twitter which if you don't i would understand but i'm there and you can find me at rambling underscore moose elias i believe you're on the bad side as well I am on the bad site. Uh, I am on Twitter at Quetzalish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. The story behind that will be revealed in issue 372. See the secret origin of Elias's name. See why my cat continues to try to lick my computer's corners. See my writing at multiversity.com. You can see my writing at multiversitycomics.com as well. It's a pretty great website you should check it out and for next time we will be reading shield by jonathan hickman and dustin weaver and you won't be disappointed that you did we'll see you there see you there excelsior